Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, along with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney, and after our marathon session last week, I think we're planning on a somewhat more digestible length of episode this week, Eric. Yes? No, no, absolutely oh. not. We, oh. we, are, we are not going to try and make this one any shorter than last time. We're going even longer. I'm, I'm thinking this week's podcast will be three hours and two minutes long, and it will be called Showtime Boxing Podcast colon Endgame. Uh, and, and you have to listen until the very end to find out which of your favorite Showtime <laughs> podcasters survive and which ones don't make it. And, and that includes the extended Showtime Boxing Podcast podcast matic universe so uh you know even 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 paulie and peter cards are in danger that's right that's right as long as neither of us snap our fingers <laughs> right i get that reference i have seen uh, it uh, infinity war i get it uh there you go there you go <laughs> personally i always enter every podcast thinking it's probably end game and it always amazes <laughs> me when it isn't <laughs> well all right that attitude has uh, served you well so far so far, so far. All right. So uh, coming up on the next uh, two hours, 59 and a half minutes, um, <laughs> we will be talking to featherweight titleist Gary Russell Jr., Mr. Gary Russell yes, Jr., get it right. ahead of his title defense against Spain's Kiko Martinez on the May 18th show from Barclays Center in Brooklyn. We will look ahead to next Saturday's big event as Canelo Alvarez takes on Daniel Jacobs in defense of his middleweight world championship in Las Vegas. We will look at some of the news in the boxing world, including the... Big bomb, El Bombo Grande, probably. <laughs> You're so bilingual. Probably. I don't know. I don't know what it is in Kazakh, uh, which would be more appropriate. Uh, that certainly detonated on Wednesday, sent reverberations throughout the boxing world. The unexpected and apparently acrimonious split between Gennady Golovkin and Abel Sanchez. But first, we have some fights to discuss. And let's just rip off the Band-Aid here and begin with the Cosmopolitan Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, where on Saturday night on Showtime, uh, Robert Easter and Rantis Bartholomew boxed to a 12-round draw in a fight in which, well, however you scored it, a draw kind of felt appropriate, Eric. Yeah, that's right. There, there were no winners in this fight uh, in the ring or among those watching. Um, you know, sometimes it happens. A, a fight can look yeah. promising on paper. You hope for the best stylistically, but then the worst possible stylistic result plays out. That was the case here as both fighters were wary of the other's counterpunches. Neither was willing to get aggressive for any extended period of time, and it was a nightmare to score. I I never score even rounds. I can truthfully say it's been years since I scored an even round, but I scored two rounds even in this one because there was just nothing to choose from in a couple of those rounds. Uh, and I ended up with a card of 115-115. The judges had it 115-113 for one guy, 115-113 for the other, and 114-114. So we ended up with the draw. How did you score it, Kieran, uh, assuming you were able to keep your eyes open for all 12 rounds? Uh, and, and did you feel either fighter had done a little more than the other and deserved a win? Uh, so honestly, without even realizing it, I stopped scoring early on. Um, <laughs> okay. It was it was one of those instances, you know, you know, where instead of a 10 point must system, it was like, must somebody get 10 points? Right. Um, I thought Easter won the first few rounds, which was the first few rounds that I was scoring simply because he was at least trying to do something. Um, then Bartholomew switched to Southpaw, and we talked about this last week as to whether he'd switch back and forth or not. Mm -hmm. he switched, and that really seemed to confuse Easter, and then the pace slowed to a crawl as a, 
well, it started at a crawl. I'm not quite sure what it slowed to. Um, <laughs> to, to not moving. To not move. And, and then, honestly, a couple of rounds had gone by before I'd even realized I'd stopped scoring. And there was no way I was going to rewind and make mm. myself watch it again. So it was funny, though, thinking about it, how during that opening round, Morrow and Al and Paulie were talking about, well, here we are. The guys are just two men are just sizing each other up. And, and nobody had any idea that that was actually as good as it was going to get. Um, <laughs> right. So there were, I guess, look, there was a couple of mildly lively moments right in the latter part. You know, the start of the eighth round, I thought, oh, okay, here we go. Finally, and Easter closed the gap and started throwing some punches. And then Bartholomew blacked him off. And then that was it. That was about the excitement. Um, he did land a good punch in the ninth Easter. Um, that was about it, really. <laughs> it's really sad when we're stopping to say he did land a good punch. In I the know. Ninth. Nobody landed double digits in any round, which is right. amazing. Right. Um, you know, when we talked about this last week, I and I and I meant it. I, I said that the more I looked into the matchup, the more I thought it would be a good fight because although both guys box some distance, they kind of like to come forward and attack from distance. And and you you touched on it when you were talking about it. The problem was that no one wanted to yield the advantage of the other of getting inside the other one's range. And Bartholomew in particular, he'd obviously decided he was going to lure Easter in, didn't he, to strike him with counters. And when Easter didn't bite that uh, it was just like this constant standoff um yeah like you said it happens both men normally make for interesting fights this was a horrible style matchup in the event and i actually feel for them too you look they train hard they didn't want to create a stink both guys wanted a win not a draw but i think probably also coming off the fact each guy had lost last year neither guy wanted to lose really neither guy wanted to lose as well and and, and it was almost like oh i can't afford to lose sort of took priority over i must win um they obviously both hope that this will be a springboard back to the top after after that loss that they each suffered. Um, now they're just going to have to climb back up the ladder and walk back out to that springboard again. Um, that said, as bad as it was, it was just one fight. Here we go. We're going to go glass half full here. <laughs> okay. um, it was an ugly matchup. It's done. People do have short memories. Um, it's possible that one good performance from either guy could help, could help erase this. Do you think that either of these guys could suffer significantly from this or, you know, in terms of like future opportunities or can they erase all of this and move on? And if so, which guy do you think is better placed to move on? It's funny. I'm kind of madder at Robert Easter for how it turned out because especially after the way he talked with us. Right, right. There there was that. And just in general, in terms of the sort of fighter that he is and the sort of fighter that his opponent is, you know, Bartholomew was kind of fighting the fight he wanted uh and and so it was up to easter to make it a different kind of fight and he showed in a couple of bursts like that one in the eighth round that he could have success being aggressive but he just didn't stick to it uh and i recognize it's all easier said than done you know when you're in there with a skilled counter puncher it's not that easy to just open up but i kind of blame easter for allowing the fight to suck as much as it did mm, um mm. yet he's obviously better positioned moving forward because I think it's more Bartholomew who will come away with the stinker tag. Um, right. He's he's the Cuban guy, uh, which uh, fair or not, we think of uh, a lot of Cuban fighters, slick Cuban fighters, as as the sort of guys who perform this way sometimes. He's had some boring fights before. This fight might leave a sense that he's always a threat to suck the excitement out of a fight. Um, and by the way, uh, the fans in attendance should get a little of the blame for not booing. Um <laughs> I'm serious. You know, you can give Philly sports fans a hard time for booing uh, if that's what you want to do. But 
it effectively communicates to a team or player, right. hey, we expect more from you. Do better. This crowd, which I guess was made of, up of a lot of friends and family and supporters of one fighter or the other, the crowd didn't boo much. They were surprisingly tolerant of this fight. And they got super excited in the eighth, like that first part right. when there were some punches thrown. They, they, and yeah, I agree. Right. They yeah. Were, right, it was almost like uh, Corrales Castillo was unfolding in front of them the way they, <laughs> that they that they responded in the eighth. You know, maybe if they boo intensely, the fighters are inspired to do something a little different. But that's kind of off topic. Back back to your question, Bartholomew will carry a stink with him. I think I I, I do believe his career will suffer a bit from this. Whereas mm. Easter, people know he can make better fights. So while I don't expect he'll get a big fight offer immediately off of this performance. I could see, you know, he comes back with one entertaining win after this. Maybe that puts him right back in the mix, no problem. Um, the co-feature wasn't a whole lot better, as Victor Postal got back on track with a unanimous 10-round decision over Mohamed Mamoun by scores of 99-91, 98-92, and 97-93. The latter two of those scores may be a little close to my eyes. Uh, my prediction on this fight was particularly bad because I said KO-11 in a 10-round fight. Um, I could have sworn it was billed as a 12-rounder, uh, and maybe I should get credit for a, a correct pick since KO-11 means that I thought it would go 10 full rounds, right? Or yeah? not. Okay. You got to get minus points. <laughs> why, don't, why don't we just call it uh, call it even? Uh, no plus, okay. no minus. We'll just uh, okay. move along. Um, anyway, uh, a quick mea culpa about Postal. Uh, I said last week that he lost in lopsided fashion to Josh Taylor. I'd honestly forgotten the details of the fight, but as it was pointed out to me, that was a close fight in which the judges gave Taylor a deceptively wide decision, um, and I was just looking at the scores and forgetting what a competitive fight it was. So if we take that into account, Postal still doesn't really have a bad loss on his record. He looked good in dominating the overmatched Mamoon in a pretty forgettable fight. Did this fight give you any sense, Kieran, of where Postal stands in the 140-pound title picture now at age 35? Well, I agree with you. I thought he did look quite good. Um, you know, we both thought that he would stop Mamoon, even though you said it would be in the 16th round. But um, <laughs> but, uh, but the irony is, I think part of the reason why he didn't was was because Mamoon, and we thought he'd be overmatched, I... Uh, Part of the reason he didn't stop him was because Mamoon was maybe even worse than we thought. Um, mm. He was just, he just, I just thought he was really poor, Mamoon. And why I say that that is part of the reason why Postal didn't stop him was just because he was so awkward. And he made very little attempt to do anything other than you know, sort of move away and circle around the ring and spoil and grapple. I don't know where one judge gave him three rounds. Uh, I'm yeah. with you on that one. Um, uh, but Postal was on his toes. He was moving in and out. He was using that that good jab of his quite well. Um, it was funny. It was a reminder to me that both his high and low points were outliers, right? The stoppage win over Lucas Matisse and the wipeout loss to Terence Crawford. He's not as good as he looked against Matisse. He's not as bad as he looked against Crawford. The real Victor Postol is in the middle there. Um, mm -hmm. I think when we were talking about him last week, we suggested maybe he's sort of in the bottom half of the top 10, and maybe he's a little better than that. Maybe he's nearer the middle of the pack. Uh, but I was also thinking that a little like our main eventers, he has to be matched right. Uh, mm -hmm. He might do better and look better against a guy like a Kiro Relic, a guy who's going to come to him, than, say, a Maurice Hooker, which could be unpleasant watching. Um, but he would appear to have plenty left, and I don't know that there's anybody who's going to blow him out at 140. I think he's probably competitive to s somewhat um, with just about anybody. Even, you know, I 
I wouldn't pick him against Regis Prograve, for example, but I'm, I'm not sure that anybody blows him out. Agree. Um, but, yeah, you sort of made reference to this already. Look, neither the main event nor the co-main event are going to stay on my DVR. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's all pretend this never happened. So thank you, F.A. Ajagba, <laughs> who in the opening bout against Michael Volish gave us exactly what we expected. Um, and I mean exactly. Um, we both predicted a Jagba KO2, and that's what we got, a Jagba by stoppage in the second round. Um, that's good for five points for each of us in our competition. Plus, we each got one point for the postal win, so the score is now 37 to 32 in your favor. Um, four minutes and 40 seconds total action we had in that heavyweight fight. During that time, do we learn anything about Jagba that we didn't already know? Uh, Ronnie Shields said, his trainer, that uh, he's about a year away, Jagba, from contending. Does that sound about right? In theory, yeah, a year away from contending, maybe two years from an actual title shot. Yeah. He'd be 27 yeah. then. Yeah, that seems about right. He has to just keep gradually stepping it up, and he has to start getting some rounds in. Exactly. You'd hate to see him eventually go in against a Wilder or a Joshua or a Fury without ever having been tested, without anyone oh. stretching him at least about eight or nine rounds. Um, he obviously has a lot of tools, and... Uh, it's impossible with an imposing Nigerian fighting out of Texas not to think of Ike Ibeobuchi. Maybe Ajagba can be the guy to pick up where Ibeobuchi left off as a boxer 20 years ago. As a boxer, yes. Yes, yes. I, I made, made sure to include that phrase. Uh, but we, we just don't know much yet. All the Wallace fight showed was that, uh, like Ibeobuchi, he has a busy offense for a heavyweight. He threw 93 punches in the opening round. Um I like his one-twos. He really pops them out. But Wallace didn't provide any meaningful resistance. And really the biggest takeaway for me is that Ajagba had better watch out with continuing to throw punches after he knocks an opponent down. We, we've seen perfect records go away for that foul. It didn't happen here. But uh, but Ronnie Shields better focus a few minutes in, in camp on, on coaching him to hold up when the other guy is on a knee. I thought Tony Weeks handled that really well. Actually, he did. I've... He did, except I was a little surprised maybe he didn't take a point. Um, mm. But it would have been completely academic, obviously. Right. But I, I thought he was after, after uh, you know, giving calling time and, and letting Wallace recover and making sure he was good to continue and all that. I thought he was going to stop and, and take a point away. He didn't, but yeah. did, didn't matter. Indeed. Um, there were some other fights as well, some other cards uh, on Friday from the fabulous forum in Inglewood, California. The fantastic series of rivalries in the super flyweight division continued. Juan Francisco Estrada scoring a unanimous decision win over Strisaket or Rungvisai in a rematch of a tremendous contest that saw Rungvisai won on points last February. Uh, so, Eric, we discussed last week how Estrada's He's always good enough to lose competitively and win competitively, but he didn't yet have that signature clear win against the top opponent, um, having previously fallen just short against Rissake and against Chocolatito. But he's got that signature win now, doesn't he? I mean, how was he able to score that win? And, and what were your thoughts on the fight? Yes, he, he has that signature win. Um, it's always hard to guess with the little guys what it'll take to get them into the Hall of Fame. Um, mm. I would have expected Rafael Marquez to sail in this year on his first ballot without that tough of a field to compete against, and he didn't. So I hesitate to say that Estrada punched his ticket here. Uh, but for me, uh, for my eventual vote, he probably did. Um, years of competing at the top level, on the fringes of pound-for-pound pound consideration, couple of close losses to excellent fighters. Now he has that signature win and should enter everyone's pound-for-pound pound top 10. Um, you asked how did he do it? 
Well, he started faster than he usually does, and Srisakat started really flat, surprisingly flat, and he fought many rounds in an orthodox stance, which, yeah, that was the big thing. It wasn't working, and maybe it contributed to the flatness, and yet he took a long time to switch to southpaw. Once Srisakat did switch, he had success, Um, and also, at that point, Estrada started trading more and boxing less. I don't want to take anything away from Estrada because he boxed brilliantly, at least for the first eight rounds or so, as we know he's capable of doing. But it was mystifying that Shrisaket didn't give up on the right-handed thing after a round or two. Um, But that said, it it was just Estrada's night. There was a look in his eyes as he made his way to the ring. He just looked ready and focused. Mm -hmm. And and I tweeted it at that moment uh, that I wished I had bet on him uh, or or that mobile sports betting was up and running in Pennsylvania because I would have loved to have gotten the last second bet in. I just had a feeling watching both fighters come to the ring that Estrada was more in the zone than Sarisa Cat. And I know the scores made it look really close, but really Estrada had at least seven rounds banked in my view before the comeback really began. So to me, there wasn't much drama down the stretch. It was just a case of a blowout turning into a close fight. Uh, but, but good for Estrada. He fought damn well. And if you're one of those weirdos who has any of the heavyweights ahead of him on pound for pound, uh, <laughs> uh, still, still at this point, I, I refuse to converse with you. Um, afterward, Estrada was asked if he was open to a rubber match against Teresa Kett, And he said that, yes, he was. But first, he would prefer to take on one of the other title holders. Kieran, would you like to see a third fight with Srisa Kett next? Or are you happy for Estrada to face someone else first? And if so, who? Yeah, I think Juan Francisco Estrada has earned the right to do pretty much whatever the hell he wants uh, at this point. I mean, to, to, to follow up on that point you made about Hall of Fame consideration, I, I, I'm right there with you. With, I mean, there's... Who there aren't very many boxers who have the resume that he does. He hasn't he hasn't shirked any tough opponent. Uh, he's consistently fought the best. Um, so Rungvisai took a couple interim bouts between battles with Estrada, and he made Estrada I think fight uh, an eliminator to become the mandatory again. Estrada is perfectly entitled to do the same back to him if he wants to. And and if and if he does take somebody else, it's I mean in that division, it's not like he'd be taking a soft touch. Right. Um, if when he says he wants to fight another champion, he specifically means a belt holder. Um, so Duran Ankahas is perhaps a difficult matchup to make because he's tied to top rank in the SPN. I'd love to see him against Donnie Nieres, who I, I think yeah. is a f- fabulous fighter. Um, but maybe the most makeable is Kalia you know? Uh, be an opportunity for him to go to the UK. Uh, it could be a big event over there. And Yafai is, is promoted by Matchroom, and so that's an, a natural you know, matchup there for, for DAZN, I think. Um, but of course, if he wants to expand beyond belt holders, there's this young Nicaraguan called Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez, who I'm sure <laughs> would be more than willing to give him a rematch. Uh, plenty of opportunities for him. That it just that is that division is the gift that keeps on giving, and uh, there's not a bad matchup. And I'm really happy for Estrada. Yep. Like he's 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 just always a really good, as well as being very skilled, a real honest pro, and he's and he's always had to to fight for everything. And uh, yeah. He, like he lost to Chocolatito and then he finds himself, you know, he was being looked at as, as, as Chocolatito rose to prominence. He was surpassed in being his obvious next foil by Srisaket. Um, and so now to be back at, be on the top of the, the pile, I think that's great for him. Um, look, also on that card in the co-main event, Daniel Roman, uh, dropped and outpointed TJ Doheny to unify a pair of junior featherweight titles in a 
cracker of a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and in junior middleweight action, uh, Jesse Vargas knocked out Humberto Soto in the sixth round. Uh, is it time for Soto? We've talked about Soto maybe hanging up the gloves. Is it time? It depends what his ambitions are. Um, yeah. You know, these last two fights told us everything we need to know about him now. He's a notch above the Brandon Rios types a notch below the Jesse Vargas types. And Jesse Vargas is a very good fighter, uh, a much bigger, younger fighter. No shame in losing to him, even in getting stopped by him. We've seen Vargas hurt Tim Bradley. We've seen him knock out Saddam Ali. Uh, and Soto was was doing okay until the sixth round. So by no means do I think he's washed. But at 154 pounds, he won't beat any top 10 guys, and he will take a beating from the very best fighters and their probably aren't any six-figure paydays so i'd ask him do you want to keep going on the senior circuit or as a mid-card guy or headlining club shows in mexico making maybe ten thousand or twenty thousand bucks a fight because you can do that and and win fights and keep going if he's hoping for more than that he's probably being unrealistic um but uh quickly you 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 did mention the roman doheny fight uh that was the fight of the weekend yeah. A lot of balls on display there, uh, and this is becoming a troubling trend with me. I'm getting soft. Uh, I wanted Dehenny's corner to stop the fight in the 11th round. He he went down. He was drooling a lot of blood when they closed mm. up on him. It just felt like the kind of fight where bad things can happen in the last round and right. a half. Um, I'm not sure much of Twitter agreed with me, but he was hopelessly behind on two of the cards. Uh, my gut feeling at the time was that it was more dangerous than it was worth, but this might just be further proof that I'm, I'm getting soft in my old age. Strange times indeed. <laughs> yes. Uh, on uh, Also on Saturday night in Lafayette, Louisiana, we saw two semifinal bouts in the World Boxing Super Series. A local favorite, Regis Progre, dominated Kirill Relic, uh, earning a sixth-round stoppage to advance to the finals of the 140-pound tournament. Uh, Relic as we discussed last week, had previously gotten the better of Rancis Barthelemy, so we can easily make comparisons here between fighters who are in action on, across various networks. Uh, what are your thoughts on Progre and, and where he stacks up in the 140-pound division right now? I'm going to be Debbie Downer here just a bit and say that as excellent... There he is. <laughs> that's, that's the guy you've come to expect, yeah. <laughs> um, as excellent as Progre is... I think Relic was the perfect style for him, and I'm mm. not sure this fight tells us much uh, about how he'd do against uh, Barthelemy or an Easter or a Postal. Uh, Barthelemy and Easter aren't in his weight class anymore anyway, but just stylistically, Relic had the style to bother Barthelemy, but he played right into the slick hands of Progre. Um, but I, I think Progre is probably the guy to beat at 140 right now, unless Mikey Garcia returns to the weight, a subject that we'll explore later in the show. I tend to favor Progre over Jose Ramirez or whoever wins the Taylor Baranchik fight. Who knows? Maybe Progre versus Teofimo Lopez becomes the super fight at 140 a couple uh-huh. of years or so from now. Um, wh- one more uh, quick comment. Uh, again, Softy Raskin coming out here. Uh, but I loved the compassion from Relic's Corner in stopping this fight when they did. He wasn't that badly hurt. But there were a lot of rounds left to get through. The fight was as good as over, and they saved him pointless punishment. Wow. You are an increasingly complex man. People uh, can change, Kieran. Apparently so. If you can uh, change, and I can change. I don't know. I don't like yeah. change. Um, <laughs> in the other uh, World Boxing Super Series bout, uh, Nonita Donaire 
Yes, I'm going back to calling him Donaire. Got a late substitute <laughs> opponent in Stefan Young after Zolani Tete was scratched midweek with a shoulder injury. And uh, Nanito flashed some of the punching power of, of his prime there, knocking Young senseless in round six with a vicious left hook. I think Young was out before he hit the canvas. Yeah. Um, great. I like Nanito. Very happy for him. But it does potentially set up the scenario that I was dreading. Uh, Donaire being fed to Noia in no way in the finals. Um does this result, though, should it give me any hope that Donaire is still good enough and dangerous enough to be competitive with the monster? Uh, it might create some false hope. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll go with Donaire also for the purposes of keeping it simple here. Although, uh, you know, we, we got a new addition to the pronunciation list with Ray Flores calling him Nonito Donaire. Which, uh, uh, no, sorry, I, sorry, Ray, definitely or, wrong. Uh, that is yeah. not one of the myriad acceptable options. <laughs> uh, but uh, Donaire is still a good fighter. He's still a natural puncher. Yep. He has more in the tank at 36 than I would have expected a couple of years ago. Yep. But I fully expect him to get brutalized by Inoue if that fight happens. So uh, I guess I guess we have to root for Emmanuel Rodriguez in a few weeks. <laughs> I guess that's what we do if we're looking out for Nanito Donaire. Yeah. And that's and that's nothing on Nanito. It's just because Inoue is, is well... The monster is an appropriate nickname. <laughs> Indeed. Yep. On May 18th at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, Showtime Championship Boxing returns with heavyweight action as Deontay Wilder defends his belts against Dominic Brazil in a battle of legitimately <laughs> bad blood. The co-main event sees the return of one of the most stylish boxers to grace American rings in recent years as Gary Russell Jr. defends his featherweight title against Spain's former European champ, Kiko Martinez. And we are joined right now by the man with some of the fastest hands in boxing, Mr. Gary Russell Jr. Gary, thanks so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Oh, man. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great. Definitely a pleasure. Simple question for you to get us started. Kiko Martinez, why him? What does he bring to the table? And what kind of a fight can fans expect? Why him? Mm-hmm. Uh, only him based upon the fact that we won the Leo Santa Cruz. We asked for Leo Santa Cruz for the last three, four years now. As of now, I'm the longest current reigning WBC champion that there is up to date. The WBC made Leo Santa Cruz the mandatory challenger to compete against me for the title. Um, he optioned to take a tune-up fight. But the guy that he decided to fight wasn't a southpaw. So how could he possibly be <laughs> tuning up for Mr. Gary Russell Jr.? Um, a, lot of the, a lot of these guys that's supposed to be champions or they consider themselves the best and et cetera, I want to compete against these guys. You know, I can't get in the ring by myself. I have to defend my title by a certain time frame. Uh, anyway, this is the reason why we have a Kiko Martinez in the ring. Uh, on May 18th, instead of a unification bout with me and a Leo Santa Cruz or one of these other world champions that's out here in the Mount Division. So the, you, you hinted there at, at some frustration with, uh, with with getting the fight that you want. Uh, and also just, I assume there's some frustration with getting fights in general. You're, you're fighting on May 18th. Uh, before that, your previous fight was May 19th of 2018. Before that, it was May 20th of 2017. Clearly, this week of the year is a good week for you to fight. Uh, but I, I think you know where this question is going. Uh, the, the, it speaks to your, your inactivity. So how frustrating ha has that been for you? I mean, it's extremely frustrating. You know, when I'm one of the, I'm one of the best fighters in the world, 
I want to to compete against all of the other guys that they consider the best in the world, you know, but the managers and promoters and even sometimes the fighters don't feel as though it's in their best interest to step in the ring with a Mr. Gary Russell Jr. You know, so it, it's definitely frustrating. I find it I find it even more frustrating that me and Leo Santa Cruz are under the same banner, mm-hmm. but yet it's still, you know, we still can't get this fight to happen. You know, I'm starting to wonder, is it a a manager and promoter thing? Is it a fighter thing? I mean, what what is it? I've done everything in my power to get these fights. I tried to compete against a Carl Frampton um, at the time. He was a guy that moved up from 122 to uh, uh, to 126. And when the WBC, when he had the option to fight in the in the, as in the WBC uh, mandatory bracket, if he would have won his fight, it would obligate him to fight me for the world title. It would put him in the position to compete for the world title. He lost on the scale. These are some of the tactics that people use not to get in the ring with me. Mm, mm, you know, right. so it, it's definitely becoming frustrating. Uh, I'm planning on moving up and wait. Javante St. Davis is another guy that we would love to compete against. That's a fight that we would want. Um, hopefully we can get a Leo Santa Cruz after Kiko Martinez. We never overlook anyone. You know, Kiko Martinez was an ex-world champion. He fought everyone that there was to compete against in our division that was somebody. You know, so we don't take anyone lightly. You know, uh, we're going to prepare ourselves to the best of our ability when it comes to Kiko Martinez. And hopefully, God willing, man, after this, one of these guys will grow some kahunas and, and step in the ring. <laughs> um, you're from D.C., still live in the area. Uh, I lived in D.C. for quite some time. And anyone who's been there or lived there knows that it is one of the best fight towns in the country, even if it's one of the most underserved fight towns in the country, really. Yet it took right, a long time right, for you to right, get the right. opportunity to fight there. And and I'm curious, if did you want to fight there earlier in your career? And when you did, your last two fights were at MGM National Harbor. Well, what was that experience like for you? Well, it was cool, man. Um, honestly, I, I didn't want to fight at home until I became a world champion. Okay. You know, that- until I became a world champion, you know. Um, once I became the world champion, then it was time that I wanted to, you know, bring bring it home. I didn't want to come home empty-handed. Gotcha. Okay. Um, we, we You've talked already uh, about some of the guys you want to fight but haven't been able to fight. Let's talk about somebody you did fight. The last time we saw you, you were very impressive in taking the undefeated record of Jojo Diaz. It was a great reminder to anyone who'd forgotten of how talented you are. Was that the biggest and and most satisfying win of your pro career so far, would you say? It wasn't the most satisfying. Um, Honestly, to me, the most satisfying was when I fought against uh, Johnny Gonzalez and I won the title. Um, And it was satisfying more so because I watched my father put it, do everything in his power, put his whole life on hold, on pause just for his children, just for me and my younger brothers and to help push us to get us to the point where we are now. And when I won the world title, that was one of the most satisfying moments. And it was more so for my father. I felt like he had the opportunity to see all of his hard work and effort, you know, coming to fruition on that, on that night. Um, but uh, Jojo Diaz, hell of a fighter. I take my hat off to him. Uh, none of the, now, once again, the guys that I've been competing against are the guys that no one else wanted to compete. 
Mm-hmm. No one wanted to fight. No one wanted to fight an Oscar Eskin. Uh, Oscar Eskin Dong back when you know he was very tough. He was rugged. Um, no one wanted to fight JoJo Diaz. He was young, up and coming, strong, um, tough, and he's going to bring his physical best all the way through. Um, none of the other champions wanted to fight him. Therefore, once again, because no one wants to step in the ring with me. Because I do have a title, I have to defend my title within a certain time frame. Um, this is the reason why I've been stuck fighting with mandatory challengers uh, and fighting all these other guys. Jojo Diaz, I honestly believe that he will become a world champion at some point if he keeps his head on straight and keep moving. Um, I think he'll probably give any of these other world champions a run for their money as well. You know, uh, we was able to make the make the adjustments and make the fight. Uh, relatively easy after about the third or fourth round, he was lost. He yeah. ain't know what to do. Yeah, I, I wanted to run a few names past you as far as possible opponents, but you've talked about a couple of them already. Um, Leo Santa Cruz, you've talked about um, Javante Davis, you just mentioned, um, and Abner Morris is another guy. I just saw an interview with him where he actually called you a talent gone to waste, and that uh, he'd like to fight you when he's recovered from his injury. Um, what at this point? How likely do you think any of these fights are going to be? You sound like you're just frustrated, <laughs> and uh, at the idea of getting any of these guys in the ring with you. Yeah, well, Abner, as of now, I, I can see Abner. He's just talking, just to talk. Mm. He's trying to keep himself, keep himself relevant to a certain extent. You know, he's lost multiple fights now. He lost Leo. I don't know how many times. You know, et cetera. He's just trying to keep himself relevant. If 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 Abner wants to fight, he's not even a fight that I would even think about fighting. It's a waste of my time. I knock him out. He won't go twelve. Um, he he's just willing to put himself in the lines then now to make a little bit of currency, and that's where Abner Morris is at. So I really don't pay attention to what he says. I knock him out. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the guys that you fought that uh, I'm very curious for your take on now, uh, Vasily Lomachenko, the only fighter to defeat you as a professional. Uh, he was already heavily hyped when you two met back in June 2014. Are you at all surprised at no. just well, just how first, successful first, first he's all, become? First, first of all, first of all, I can't take nothing from Vasily Lomachenko for what he did in the amateurs. Mm-hmm. But in the professionals, no one knew who Vasily Lomachenko was until he fought a dehydrated Mr. Gary Russell Jr. Okay, Point so- blank period. He lost to Toledo before he fought me. You know, I take nothing from Toledo. You know, but he's a flat-footed fighter that doesn't have a lot of versatility in his game and that is limited in, in, in his fight game. You know, he had the ability to win, but what you see is what you get with Toledo. He's just going to come forward and throw punches. That's it. That's all. There's no real intellect put into it. There's no real thought process put into it. He's just a slugger, you know. And Vasily Lomachenko lost to that guy. You know, he he. It was no real relevancy brought to him into the professional life until he fought Mr. Gary Russell Jr. Okay, and so and so you're saying you weren't at your best that night. Um, but uh, that said. Are you at all surprised by how high he's ascended as a pro since then? The fact that a lot of people regard him as the the number one fighter in the sport. I don't think he should be a number one pound for pound. I am definitely surprised at that, but it's cool either way. Because before the conclusion of my career, I would love to compete against Vasily Lomachenko 
twice because after I break my foot off in his ass the first time, <laughs> we would definitely we will definitely have to do it again because it ain't gonna be no split. He know that he got a Christmas gift. Anyone that ever that watched that fight seen a a a, a different Mr. Gary Russell Jr. Not because of the opponent, just the Mr. Gary Russell Jr. Pretty. I didn't have the ability to. You you didn't see the punching power. You didn't really see the hand speed. I was tired in the first round. We had to lose. We had to lose a lot of weight. We miscalculated a, a lot of stuff going into the fight as far as cutting weight and stuff like that. You know, I was about four and a half, five pounds overweight, and we had to lose it all before the fight. I was completely dehydrated, and we still fought to a split decision fight. It was an actual knockdown in that fight that wasn't called, but it's cool. Once again, that's neither here nor there. Um, and it, and it woke me up. It woke me up mm-hmm. a little bit. I need I needed I needed a little bit of fuel because it was nothing that was it's nothing for me anything to have to push or work for. Now everybody that I fight, uh, I don't take them lightly, but they're completely in my way. The only thing that matters is getting back to fighting Vasily Lomachenko, and not just fighting him, but beating him in the way in which that I want to. All right. And the other week, uh, we on ESPN pay-per-view, we saw an up-and-coming guy in your weight class, Shakur Stevenson. Um, and after he, he won his fight, Tim Bradley, who was commentating from ringside, said he thought that Stevenson, even with just like 11 fights, would start his favorite against pretty much anyone in the division. I'm sure you disagree with that. But what do you think about him as an up-and-coming talent? Of course I disagree with that. <laughs> but as far as what I think about him as an up-and-coming talent, I think he is a, a good fighter. I've actually worked with him before, okay. and if you talk to him, if you get it, if you get an option, opportunity to talk to him, ask him about it. And let's see how truthful he. Let's see how truthful he'll be. But uh, I think he's a good young fighter. I think um, in due time he'll definitely become a world champion as well. I think he definitely has all of the talent in the world to become a world champion. I think he still has stuff that he needs to mature on. You know, but that's 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 a given. You know, he has maybe ten, eleven fights, something like that. Yeah. You know, so you're still learning. He's still learning. You know, he's still learning uh, certain stuff in the ring, and he's still building and adding on to his repertoire. But I feel as though what he have, what he brings to the table, whether now is still a threat to a lot of these guys out here. I think mm-hmm. he's definitely going to be one of these guys that's going to be a, uh, one of the new leaves on the tree. Once the season changed. This this has been this has been fun so far. You 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 talk a really good game, Gary, and it's it's uh, it, these are uh, really interesting and uh, enjoyable answers. I have one last question for you, and then I'm, Kieran might have one uh, more as truth, well. All, all <laughs> truthful answers. All right. So here's my last question for you: Is you said last year that you were planning on having a half dozen more fights and then calling it a day. Is that still your plan? Uh, or do you think you, you might be around for, for longer than that? No, that's definitely still my plan. You know, um, I have a, my, I have a beautiful family that's, that's growing. Uh, me and my wife was married for about seven years, going on eight now. We have five beautiful children. Um, just had a set of twins. We just had us a set of twins. So, you know, our family's growing. You know, I want to be able to spend time with my family. You know, I've been competing in the sport of boxing since I was maybe seven years old. And I was actually in the gym longer than that. I was in the gym since I was about 
was at a gym, so I was about maybe two or three, uh-huh. you know, so it's a lot of, yeah, you know, so it's a lot of work, a lot of time away from the family, and I'm one of those guys that don't cut any corners, you know, uh, I sacrifice when it's time to sacrifice, you know, I put all the work in, my body's sore right now at this very moment, <laughs> You know, I'm hurting all over, you know, but for progression by any means necessary. And I just want to be able to spend time with my family. You know, I want to be able to spend time with my family uh, and enjoy my baby. Go to the schools, work for me, you know, et cetera. I spend time with my wife, my mom, my dad, my brothers, you know, and help my brothers along with their career. Yeah, my final question, you know, talk about about family. You mentioned your brothers there, Gary Antoine and Gary Antonio. They're They're unbeaten pros as well. You must be, I'm sure, really proud of them and, the, and their progress. And maybe folks who haven't seen them as much as they've seen you, what can you tell us about them and what their prospects are? Uh, well, Antonio, he's 118. He's a big 118. He's a big 118-pounder. He's a deceptionally uh, strong for his weight size, for his weight class. He brings power. You'll see glimpses of, 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 of me in both of my friends. Mm-hmm. But they have their own little twist. Tony is, 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 is very, he's a very physical fighter. You know, um, he's rough. He'll get aggressive. He'll get physical. He definitely don't mind getting physical and getting rough. Uh, Antoine, he, he's slick. He can box. He has speed. He has uh, punching power as well. And, um, he has a, a, a Mr. Gary Russell kind of aura about him as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they're both going to be a force to be reckoned with. As of now, as of now, they're I expect them to be head and shoulders better than the the competition that they're competing against. And it's one of the uh, 2016 Olympians. Yeah, 2016 Olympian in Rio, and they robbed him. They robbed him. They had to suspend all the judges after, after they announced the decision and everything and an investigation and all just to find out that the people paid off all the judges at the Olympics. <laughs> you know, um, I expect them to be heads and shoulders better than these guys. What I look for for them, because they are young, up-and-coming guys, and they are better than some of these guys they're competing against. I, if they're better, I expect them to be better. I don't, I don't expect them to fight down to the competition. Mm. I want them to maintain a level of defensive discipline at all times. Well, look, man, I think you bring the uh, same kind of class to your interviews that you do to your fights in the ring. This has been an absolute pleasure and um, really grateful to you for your time because I know you're busy, you're, you're preparing for your fight and we wish you all the best against Kiko Martinez on May 18th, and we will see you in Brooklyn in Fight Week. Thank you very much. Man, thank you, thank you, and stay tuned. Fireworks. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Gary. so much. This Saturday, May 4th, Canelo Alvarez and Daniel Jacobs meet at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas for the lineal middleweight championship of the world. And I don't think there's any question... Uh, that outside of a third Canelo Triple G fight, there's really no better or more significant bout to be made in the division. Uh, and indeed, a September date with Golovkin is a possible reward for the winner. And for Daniel Jacobs, 
Wow, this marks just, it's just the latest incredible step in a truly remarkable journey. Here's the incredible thing. The last time Jacobs fought in Las Vegas was in 2010. He was undefeated, a highly promising young fighter, but he ran into trouble against Dimitri Pirog and was knocked out in the fifth round. Uh, shortly thereafter, as many of us know, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer, had to confront the prospect of death, frankly, but not only recovered, resumed his boxing career and has returned to the very pinnacle of the sport. Amazingly, it's Pirog who's long since been forced to retire from boxing through injury and and Daniel Jacobs just going from strength to strength. Uh, So here's the thing thought that occurred to me. It was just a couple of weeks ago that Tiger Woods winning the Masters was being held in seriousness Mm -hmm. in some quarters as the greatest comeback in the history of sports. And well, look, look, far be it from me to diminish the valor involved in using long sticks to knock little white balls into holes after years of back pain and adultery. But (laughs) I think Danny Jacobs might be justified in taking issue with that particular description. (laughs) Yeah. uh, The, the greatest comeback in sports. uh, Yeah. There, there are a long list of contenders for that. And Danny Jacobs is definitely on it. Congrats to tiger, but if you're out there in the media or you're a fan who, who called that the greatest comeback in sports history, you are announcing to the world that you know nothing about boxing and that you've <laughs> never heard of George Foreman, uh, who right. was out of boxing entirely for 10 years, then returned to a sport in which people punch each other in the head. <laughs> They're not tapping balls on carefully manicured greens. Uh, and he won the lineal heavyweight title by knockout at age 45. Uh, no. Also, there, there's Willie Pep, who came back from being yeah. in a plane crash, uh, which uh, I don't believe occurred while he was running away from his angry wife. Um, <laughs> and there's uh, there's Vinny Paz, uh, who had a halo and screws in his head. No. Uh, and then there's Daniel Jacobs, who, as sick as I am of hearing the story, because we've been hearing it nonstop for about seven years, he did have bone cancer. He wasn't sure if he'd live. He was told he'd never box again. And he came back to win real titles and beat top middleweights and earn this huge fight against the biggest star in the sport. So come on, golf people. You know, greatest, right. com- greatest comeback in the history of golf. Go ahead and say that if you want. Stick to what you know. Uh, Daniel Jacobs is one of, of several boxers with an amazing comeback story. Um, but of course, this is more than just a, a good story. Uh, it is, a, as you mentioned, a legitimately good fight and one that Jacobs, for one, clearly feels he can win. Uh Canelo, uh, Jacob said recently, quote, has undereducated footwork and has a hard time with a moving target. We've created not only plan A, plan B and plan C, but a few game plans to exploit Canelo's weaknesses. I have the physical advantage. I have the reach, height, speed, power and ring IQ. And he does indeed have two and a half inches in both height and reach. We'd expect him to play up his chances. That's standard pre-fight stuff. But does Jacobs have a point? Yeah, I think he, you know, quite possibly, actually, although perhaps less so than a year or 18 months ago. Um, I'm hardly alone in having felt for a while that Jacobs is a potentially a nightmare style matchup for Canelo for all the reasons that he mentioned there. Um, And another as well, the fact that he can switch it up. Uh, You know, he can move from orthodox to to southpaw uh, easily. Um, You know, that's that's one of the things that he did against Golovkin that made him so effective, that switching up. Um, You know, Canelo sort of dismisses his supposed difficulties with southpaws. He points out that the last one he faced was James Kirkland, who he didn't really have any trouble with at all. But Kirkland is, you know, he's the exception to the rule. It's like uh, we talked a while back that you have to, if you're a southpaw, you have to be described as a crafty southpaw. And then there's James Kirkland, um, who is... (laughs) 
who is not. Um, you know, I think when you, when people point to Canelo's difficulties against Southpaws, they, they refer mostly to Erislandi Lara and Austin Trout. Both of them did cause him some difficulties, but, you know, I was ringside for the Trout fight, and uh, look, I thought Canelo won that fight, um, despite what some folks have argued. Even Trout's team acknowledged as much in, in, in the arena afterwards. Uh, the Lara fight was close, but Lara ran everybody close at its mm-hmm. peak and was an absolute nightmare to fight. And it wasn't just being a, night, a southpaw that's a problem. It was, uh, to refer to one of Danny Jacobs' points, there was their movement, you know. Um, Canelo, on the basis of those fights, got a bit of a reputation of maybe just not doing real well against against people who move and maybe uh, his own footwork, his own ring generalship was perhaps a weakness in his game. Um, he did show but in the first fight with Golovkin that the ring movement and footwork were probably a lot better than they have been in the past. The difference there was that he was using his footwork evasively to prevent himself from getting trapped, whereas against Jacobs, he may have to use it to trap Jacobs, if you know what I mean. Um, you know, So Canelo's going to need to cut off the ring, and then he's also going to have to contend with, with that longer reach um, and with uh, the dual stances and with... Uh, uh, his footwork. So there's a whole combination, there's a whole suite of things that Jacobs brings to the table that I think makes him a really, really, really dangerous opponent for Canelo Alvarez. Uh, And I think the key is going to be whether Canelo can dominate the ring, can cut off Jacobs' movement. And then if he can do that, he's got to kind of slip inside and nullify that reach advantage and work inside. If he can do that, he's certainly got the strength and the skill to overcome him. But if he can't, it, c- it could be a really long and difficult night. I think this is a really interesting fight. Uh, yeah. And I'm really curious to see how it how it goes on. Um, of course, one guy who won't be in the ring, but we've already mentioned him. His presence is going to be everywhere during fight week and on fight night is Golovkin. Uh, he is 1-1 one, one and one against these two. He probably feels he should be 3-0. and oh, And I'm sure between them, Canelo and Jacobs record he should be 0-3. Oh um but, you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting, the sort of counterpoint, you know, to, to what a tough style matchup uh, Danny is for Canelo. Since he, he had that close loss to Golovkin and he performed incredibly well in March 2017, Jacobs looked a little underwhelming, frankly, in defeating Luis Arias and Maciej Chulensky. And he was taken to a split decision by Sergei Derevianchenko. And then, you know, Canelo had those back-to-back brutal bouts with Golovkin. And since then, we've only seen him up against the overmatched Rocky Fielding. So one question is, is it possible that Jacob's relative ordinariness since the Golovkin fight is a sign that Golovkin took a lot out of him? Is it possible, we just haven't seen it yet, that those two absolutely brutal fights will have taken something else out of Canelo? Do you think there's a possibility that that's going to be a factor on Saturday? I think you might be reaching a little with that question. Uh, It's it's an interesting topic to discuss, but I I really doubt it. Uh, Jacobs certainly didn't take a beating against Triple G. It was a a good, hard 12-round fight, but not the kind that takes years off your career. Same for Canelo's fights with him. They were really tough 12-rounders, and he took his share of clean punches, but... He wasn't down. He wasn't particularly visibly hurt. I didn't see significant punishment. So as best I can tell, we're getting physically prime versions of both fighters on Saturday. Jacobs is 32. Canelo is 28. Canelo looks better with every fight. Uh, And while you can't say the same for Jacobs, you know, Zelensky and Derevyanchenko are both good fighters, both real top 10 guys. So, no, I, I really expect to see the best of both men in this fight. 
the question is whether the best of any Canelo opponent is good enough. We, we've spoken before about how difficult it is to get a decision against Canelo Alvarez, and there was outrage when the initial six-person shortlist for judges for this bout included Adelaide Bird, who turned in the absurd 118-110 card for Alvarez in the first Golovkin fight. This is a real unnecessary bad look for the Nevada Commission. Right. You know, not penalizing her one bit for the yeah. single most criticized scorecard of, of yeah. the last five years and then keeping her in the mix here. Fortunately, Bird didn't make the final cut, and the three judges at ringside will be Steve Weisfeld, Glenn Feldman, and Dave Moretti, the same trio who scored Canelo's rematch with Golovkin. Anything to cause Jacobs any concern there? No. Look, as you and I have discussed before, Steve Weisfeld's the best judge in boxing, certainly yep. in the States. Um, he's so good that if I ever have a scorecard that diverges from his, I assume I've got it wrong. <laughs> I mean, I just think he's that good. I, I can't think of a bad card that he's turned in. Um, honestly, you know, Adelaide Birds was the only egregious card uh, in the six that were handed in, you know, over the two fights with Canelo right. and, and Golovkin, although Don Trella's round seven in the first fight was a bit bad. But um, so Dave Moretti scored the first Canelo Triple G fight, 115-113 for Gennady. He scored the second 115-113 for Canelo. That sounds like a guy who's pretty much down the middle to me. Uh, Glenn Feldman scored the second fight, a draw. None of those cards are problematic. None of them suggest that there's any favoritism to Canelo there. But the broader problem is, just as you said, in close rounds, Canelo often does get the benefit of the doubt. Uh, there's just something about him that appeals to judges, uh, particularly mm-hmm. Nevada judges. And it's a com- incumbent, fairly or unfairly, on his opponents to really separate themselves from him each round. Because, yeah, he, the very close rounds are more likely to go Canelo's way. Uh, yeah, as, as we discussed, and as you just mentioned, there's beating Canelo and there's getting a win over Canelo. And those aren't necessarily the same thing. Right. Um as we mentioned, you have to figure that Golovkin in September awaits whoever comes through this. Uh, Canelo, though, said that nothing in his own contract binds him to a third Golovkin fight. And that should he defeat Jacobs, uh, he just wants to fight whoever holds the one alphabet belt he will not have. And at present, that's Demetrius Andrade. So can he actually be serious about swerving Golovkin for another alphabet belt? Or is he just helping our friend Rafe Bartholomew fill the heel Canelo <laughs> section of his respect box newsletter? Um, I think this is this is heel Canelo stuff. He yeah, wants to get good. Triple G angry. Uh, yeah. He wants to let Triple G know who calls the shots. But I do fully expect that if they both win their next fights, that third fight will happen. But, you know, the more I think about it, maybe not next. And the reason <clears> I say that is if Jacobs turns out to be a tough fight, Maybe Canelo doesn't want to go back-to-back with the toughest possible guys four months apart. Maybe he slips in a Rocky Fielding-level guy. He has this long contract, 11 fights, I believe. He can stretch it out a little. Uh, I don't think he'd bypass Triple G for Andrade, because that's a risky fight, fight too. Yes. Um, but he might push Triple G to next May, you know, let Gennady get a little closer to 40. Uh, I could see Canelo going heel enough to do that. Um, I I think a lot depends on whether he beats Jacobs in a close, tough fight or takes care of business more easily than that. Yeah. Yep. Seems reasonable. Okay. Enough of that in-ring stuff. Uh, It's the the (laughs) outside-the-ring news that we all really follow boxing for, right? Uh, Right. We have a few news items to run through quickly this week and then one to talk about at greater length. But uh, first, let's let's start with some quick hits. Uh, After losing to Errol Spence Jr. in March, Mikey Garcia was widely expected to move back down to lightweight. 
but he's announced he's vacating his lightweight belt. Uh, speaking on Inside PBC Boxing, he said he was open to, at one stage, returning to fight for that title, but that he was not expecting his next bout to be at lightweight and was exploring other options, including staying at welterweight. Uh, that that last part surprised me. Did it surprise you? Yeah, that's the bit. I mean, I'm, you know, giving up the belt, I mean, I think they, that alphabet buddy made him. They have this champion emeritus thing where you can come back and fight. For, that's what they did with Vitaly Klitschko, right? right? And and so that means he loses nothing. If he decides that he wants to go back and fight for that belt for whatever reason, he can he can do that. So he, so in terms of keeping his options open, that doesn't necessarily surprise me at all. But yeah, the welterweight thing, that was the thing that was a surprise. Uh, I felt sure that he'd probably go down at least to 140 but right. again maybe it's just the case of him just hitting the pause button and deciding he just doesn't want to make any decision just yet yeah um bunch of other quick news items uh after his last outing a victory over zolasani and dungeni in a showbox main event in january lightweight prospect slash contender devin haney stated that after three consecutive showbox appearances he wanted his next bout to be on showtime championship boxing well that's not going to happen. Instead, Haney has jumped ship to matchroom boxing and will make his debut with them on DAZN in just a few weeks on May 25th. Uh, also, Rob Brandt, who upset Ryoto Murata for a middleweight belt in Las Vegas in October, is headed to Osaka, Japan for a rematch on July 12th. Uh, one man who does not have a fight on the immediate horizon and has, in fact, not fought since March 2018 is junior welterweight contender Amir Imam, and he is now suing promoter Don King and former man manager Stacey McKinley for breach of contract and violations of the Muhammad Ali Boxing Reform Act. Anything you find interesting among those various news items? I'm, I'm going to steal. I don't know who did it, but I, I saw this tweet and I'm going to steal and adapt it, okay. which is. Joe Biden is running for president. Anita Hill and Oliver North are in the news, and Don King is getting sued by a fighter. <laughs> it's 1987 all over again. There you go. Yeah. Um, uh, out of those other items, the thing that I am very interested in is the Brandt uh, Murata rematch. I was shocked that Brandt won that fight. I really thought that Murata was going to win, and Brandt won it pretty well, mm. and comprehensively. So I'm certainly very interested to see what he can do on uh, Murata's home turf. Okay, so that's all the minor news of the past yes. week, but there's a clear winner for biggest outside-the-ring <laughs> news. On Wednesday, Gennady Golovkin announced on Instagram that, quote, I want to build on what I have already achieved and continue to better myself. Therefore, I will not be training with Abel Sanchez. This is not an easy decision for me, and it is not a reflection of Abel's professional abilities. He is a great trainer, a loyal trainer, and a Hall of Fame trainer, end quote. That was certainly a shock, given that Sanchez and Golovkin had been together for nine years and seemed joined at the hip. But whatever the reasons for it, Golovkin's announcement made it seem as if the split was amicable. That was until Sanchez's response detonated very shortly <laughs> afterward. He said in a statement that after making it possible for Golovkin to sign a six-fight, $100 million contract with DAZN, he proposed and insisted on an insulting new trainer compensation schedule. My dignity and honor does not allow me to be screwed like that. It's unfortunate being greedy, being ungrateful, and no ethics, honor, or integrity will end this relationship. Wow. Uh, so Indeed. it certainly doesn't sound as if there's any possibility of bridges being mended there. Uh, that bridge has not only been burned, but thoroughly napalmed. Uh, Kieran, you got to know both of these men fairly well over the past several years. Thoughts on this breakup? Um, well, sad. 
obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's their business, obviously, and it's a professional relationship, but it just it was such a great a great story. And, and they, they, as you mentioned, they seem to be joined at the hip. Um, I will say I was a bit surprised that most of the fighters I know who have opined on this side with Golovkin, um, and maybe you'd expect them to do so, right? Boxes are more likely to side with each other. But um, a couple did say that this is kind of how it often works. If the really big money starts coming in, it's normal to move away from that 10% um and put trainers on a kind of a payroll a salary um you know after all trainers have lots of people to pay uh trainers have lots of fighters purses to to you know uh be their income whereas you know fighters have lots of people to pay out of their purse and Mm -hmm. so i don't know but all of that said whatever the deal was that golovkin offered abel and there was some talk i'm not sure if abel himself said it but that it was a 2% cut rather than a 10% one. Whatever it was, it really offended him. And uh, and where, even if like these other fighters often, yeah, when they get really big, they, they, they switch the, uh, you know, the compensation schedule. The right. fact is that Abel was the guy who brought Golovkin up. I mean, Golovkin was nobody and he showed up, no disrespect to him, he showed up at a big bear and it, you know, it was, it was Abel and it was Tom Loeffler and it was everybody and Golovkin all working together who created the Golovkin phenomenon. And, and so it's amazing. It's surprising to me on one level that you, you wonder why it wouldn't have been possible for Gennady to have accommodated him somehow or find a way to make it work. And if he didn't, he kind of almost makes you wonder if he wanted to accommodate him or find a way to make it work. Um, the one thing I will say, like you said, I got to spend a bit of time around Gennady and around Abel at the summit, knew them a little bit um, over the last several years. Is I will say that Gennady did noticeably change after the first Canelo fight, uh, and even more so after Canelo's failed drug test. Um, hmm. Look, he was never this fuzzy Yakov Smirnov knockoff that everybody seemed to think he was with his cute little like phrases and all of that. He was, he's, a, he's a lot meaner and a lot more driven um, uh, than the many people saw. Uh, you know, he was always surrounded by security and a full team, but but something happened with that fight. And, you know, he felt he really won it. That Adelaide bird card pissed him off. The drug test pissed him off. He became exposed, I think, for the first time to the realities of the boxing business. I, I wonder if he felt his people weren't able to give him the same protection in the way that Oscar was with Canelo. Um, right. You know, he, he, it was little things. He stopped answering questions in English. Uh, and I think part of that was because he didn't want to be misunderstood. Supposedly his wife had told him that he sounded stupid. Um, he became a little bit more distant. He became more sensitive to criticism. So I think the story can now be told. Prior to the rematch with Canelo, he had, he refused on fight night to do a pre-fight interview with Max Kellerman in right. the locker room, apparently because he took offense to something that Max said on first take. That I can't remember what it was, but when it was related to me, it was pretty innocuous, the kind of thing that Max is paid to say on first take, and I can't <laughs> right. remember what it was. Right. Um, and so that's why I got the call to go back to the dressing room to do an interview on the pay-per-view, because he refused to talk to Max. And then when I got there, he refused to talk to me too, which is why I ended up talking to Abel. And people thought when he left the ring afterward after that fight that he was just being a bad sport because he lost, but he'd already said he wasn't going to talk to Max. Right. So I don't know. Something happened that just made him like mad at the world a little bit, or at least if not mad, then the realization that, you know what, at the end of the day, the only person I can rely on is me and I'm going to take care. I'm in the final few years 
of my career. I'm just going to look after number one here and I'm the one who counts and I'm just going to take care of myself. And I just kind of wonder if that's really what's going on, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's really a, a fascinating situation, just uh, the armchair, armchair psychologist that we all are. Um, I have a few things to comment on. One, um, you said that uh, Golovkin was, was nobody until Abel came into his life, but devil's advocate, you could say Abel was nobody until sure. Golovkin. So they, re- sure. they really elevated each other, to be fair there. Um, I'd need to just see the real numbers to know whether Abel does or doesn't have a right to be pissed about mm-hmm. the pay. You know, it's it's standard in boxing to stop giving your trainer 10% once you start making huge purses. I mean, when Floyd Mayweather makes $100 million, his trainer isn't getting $10 million sure. for two months of work. Um, and even on a smaller scale, guys making a million bucks for a fight, you know, they'll switch to a, a flat fee or a smaller percentage. Um, so... I don't know what Abel was making for the Canelo fights. I don't know how much Triple G offered him here. I'd have to see those numbers to see if it really feels like Gennady was being unfair. I do think, uh, you know, you just talked about some of some of the stories and some of what was going on. We've also heard some behind-the-scenes whispers of Triple G being difficult in these negotiations with mm. the zone, that those negotiations dragged out so long remember how we all expected him to sign with the zone and then it took longer than any of us thought it would before the obvious signing happened uh supposedly because he wasn't being easy to work with um there were also reports incorrect as it turned out that he was firing tom loffler um sometimes losing changes a man you noted it started before the official loss um but particularly with a loss even if he doesn't really feel like he lost even if it was a decision he disputes it's easy for everyone to get along when you're winning, but the yeah. cracks appear when you lose. Um, I am a devoted fan of the reality show Survivor, uh, 38 seasons and counting of never missing an episode, <laughs> pathetically enough. Um, and you see it every season. There's tribe harmony when you're winning, but when you lose, the lying and backstabbing begins. And that's largely a function of the game and being forced to vote people out. But it's also an accurate reflection of social behaviors and how winning solves all problems, but those solutions are temporary. I would have to assume there were problems in the Golovkin camp before this, but they only became untenable problems after Perhaps. his first defeat. Yeah. I, I yeah. don't, th- I don't think it's pure coincidence that the timing of this breakup comes following his first official loss. Yeah, no, I think that's probably right. Um, let's finish off with a mailbag question and it's related to, and presumably inspired by uh, this triple G Abel Sanchez developments. Mark O at Marco518 drops a question into the mailbag via Twitter asking, uh, f- well, he doesn't ask, he just <laughs> doesn't form it as a question. It's just, uh, there is a question mark in there. But right, anyway, he did the old statement with a question mark at the end, right, qualifying as right, a question, sort right, of. The, exactly, the, the question is implicit. Okay. Uh, fighters who have thrived following a late, craner, late career trainer switch, question mark, uh, or been derailed by one, if you're more of a half-empty guy. Uh, I could think of a couple. What's top of your mind? I struggled to think of uh, any that are perfect fits for this. The the first thing I thought of, neither of these are late career. They're really mid-career. But the first thing that comes to mind is Emmanuel Stewart reinventing and reinvigorating Lennox Lewis and Vladimir Klitschko and turning both into Hall of Fame heavyweights. But I'm struggling to think of one late in a fighter's career, like Mm -hmm. at the Golovkin stage that really provided a lasting boost. Uh, maybe maybe you have one that, that I should have thought of, but didn't. Uh, but I, I think there are more examples to go that half-empty route 
of trainer changes that didn't work or that worked for a fight or two and then fizzled out, uh, like Oscar De La Hoya, who changed trainers a lot. But teaming up with Freddie Roach really didn't do much for him. Um, you know, big name fighter gets together with big name trainer. Not a lot of success, though. Uh, Teddy Atlas came in and took over Tim Bradley's corner. He no. gave the hilarious and memorable fireman speech. We'll always have that. Uh, but I don't think Teddy ever got anything more out of Bradley than what was already being gotten out of him. Not saying those switches derailed anything, which was part of the question to use that word derailed. They just didn't add anything. Uh, same with Mike Tyson toward the end. There was a revolving door of trainers there, and a lot of them failed. I hate to say it, but Mickey Ward training Arturo Gatti didn't work at all, though Though maybe that was just timing, that Gatti was done and there was nothing anyone could do about it. So I don't know. I struggled to come up with a perfect answer here. Um, also operating on four hours of sleep after a late night of fights, since uh, every Saturday is a late night of fights these days. <laughs> uh, did you think of anything better? No. The, the only one... Um... I thought you might bring up uh, Buddy McGirt and Arturo. Do you think that's more mid-career than... Uh, no, that's a good... I, I'll, I guess it works in the sense that we thought it was late career at the time. We thought Arturo right. was maybe about done and then Buddy revived him. So that's a great example of one that really worked. Yeah. Yeah, and, and no, I also... <laughs> I, come, I also came up with another Teddy... Uh, again, not late career, because he's still fighting, I think, amazingly. And Michael Grant didn't need hmm. to turn to Teddy Atlas as a guy to build up his confidence after <laughs> after he lost. That was I, not a good choice. Uh, uh, I, had, I had forgotten that they even worked together. I, yeah. I had blocked that out entirely. <laughs> yeah, that, that was not a good call. Um, uh, and yeah, no, I was the same as you in that I couldn't think of anything that derailed them, but was it really a good choice? Like, I was thinking about when Ricky Hatton dumped his longtime trainer, Billy Graham, and switched to Floyd Sr. I, I, I don't know. It made sense to maybe look for somebody who could give him more than Billy did, but Floyd and Ricky never seemed like a very good matchup, and I don't know that that really helped him particularly. Um, yeah, it was tough to think of one that somebody had been going pretty well changed trainers and then went off a cliff i couldn't think of that and in terms of the good ones the obvious one was the same as you came up with manny with lennox and vladimir um that was a an, an ex but like you said mid-career rather than late career so right. um I, I guess marco we failed <laughs> but at least at least we su you succeeded in getting me to picture ricky hatton attempting the shoulder roll defense which is just a, <laughs> an, an odd image to picture uh it was so, such so an there's odd that choice yeah yeah, not a, not, not a good fit there. Yeah, no. Anyway, hey, many thanks to Mark O for that question. Remember, you can ask your own mailbag question at any time by posting on Twitter with the hashtag AskShowPod. Uh, many thanks also to Mr. Gary Russell Jr. for joining us earlier. And that will do it for this edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week to review this Saturday's big fight between Canelo Alvarez and Daniel Jacobs. Until then... Thanks for listening.